Listen up, get ready, I'm not gonna take no more. There's a revolution, a revelation going on in my soul. Buckle up, get ready, we're not gonna sit back. Well, hello, all you friends, your neighbors, family, comrades, sisters, and brothers, all citizens of the world. From Chicago, I'm Michael James. I'm here with another edition of the Live from the Heartland show. This one is being recorded on the 25th of January. It's for the week of January 28th, and it is number 137 since the beginning of the pandemic. So that's over two years we've been doing this via Zoom, and we hope you're having a good time out there wherever you are. Today, we are bringing you uh, Brian Meir with a report on Brazil all the way from Brazil, thanks to Zoom. We're going to talk with our old friend David Kraft from the Nuclear Energy Information Service. And we're going to talk to uh, our music producer, Lynn Orman, and uh, the people she has with her. I think Wendy Morgan, Daryl Boggs, and Ivy Ford. And they're going to talk about this children's album that is nominated for a Grammy. So we're going to start off with a little bit of information. We call it banter sometimes. There's good, there's bad. Starting off with the bad. We've had uh, more terrible shootings than one could imagine here in the United States. Since January, there have been almost 40 mass killings, and the news is just packed with it, so much so that people tend to turn it off. And at the same time this is going on, the failed Republicans in here in Illinois keep bringing suits against the state's new ban on assault weapons. Most recently, a suit by some of the former candidates for office in the state have come out of White County. Okay, that's the bad news. In the medium news, last week we were pretty blissed out and joyful in reporting that we had learned that Leonard Peltier was being talked about seriously. The retired FBI agent Colleen Rowley called for clemency for indigenous activists in prison for nearly 50 years talks about the FBI's prejudice around the case. There was uh, some word that Biden had said enough is enough. Leonard Peltier should be given clemency. I haven't found any more on it, except a lot of stuff in recent months. Senators calling for clemency, world organizations calling for clemency, but the head of the FBI is still calling him a murderer. There's really no evidence ever to link him to the crime. So we're going to keep on that because Leonard Peltier is 78. He's not in the best of health. He never deserved to go to prison, and we hope we can get him out. On some good news, uh, I saw some news today. It was on AOL. It came, I think, from Yahoo Financial, and it basically said Biden rolls out renters' bill of rights as lawmakers push for federal rent control laws. So this is something that progressive Democrats have asked for for a long time, for Biden to direct different agencies, including the Federal Trade Commission, to limit rent increases. While rent control is pretty common in some cities around the country, there has never been a federal residential rent control law. Let's hope that could happen because we know there are a lot of interests out there that gouge people on the rent question. Some real good news, our, our longtime friend, uh, Al Koss, has just gotten a lot of attention. Al was a cab driver when I first knew him. He uh, has always been a photographer. He took a lot of pictures during the Rising Up Angry Days. He took a lot of pictures of my daughter, Koya, getting her ears pierced during a naming ceremony. He's been to Woodstock. He has some great pictures of Jimi Hendrix, a lot of demonstrations, and uh, he'll be happy to hear 
because I know he listens or watches regularly that I think I've come upon all his rising up angry negatives that uh, I hope to work together with him on for another another photo book of things in the past that are important to know today. So good luck to Al and uh, you can find out more about his new book coming out. It's actually out and the book is called Fairs. It's a book of photographs he took in his taxi cab of people in the back. Rick Cogan did a nice story on him. It was on WGN radio in last Sunday's Tribune. That would have been the 22nd, I believe. Real good story. And uh, you'll be seeing more of his photos. And hopefully we'll get him on the show live when he figures out how to do a Zoom. Okay. Here in Chicago, once again, I'm reminding everybody we are gearing up for the big election. Who will be our next mayor? Who will be on the new police district council? Who will be the treasurer, the city clerk, etc.? All this is coming down on February 28th. If you just go to Block Club Chicago or just type in Chicago elections, you can get all the information you want. And there's a lot of aldermanic as well as mayoral debates going on. Here in the 49th Ward, Network 49 has endorsed Ed Beth-Jones, Marilyn Pagan-Banks, and Veronica Ariola for this new police oversight. On the sports front, the Bulls uh, won against the Warriors. They won in Paris. They came back. They won against Atlanta, and they lost on Tuesday night against Indianapolis. We'll keep you posted. Um, not a lot of football on the local front, except that the Bears are going to move to Arlington Heights, it looks like. And all that vacant old steel mill land down there awaits something to happen with it on the southeast side. I confess to having watched a lot of football games this weekend and probably will watch a number of them again in the NFL playoffs. Last week, we had Heather Booth talking about the movie Jane. We had uh, Nick Ward, a candidate for the 48th Ward Aldermanic position. And we had Don Rose giving us the first of several mayoral updates on the current uh, mayoral race here in Chicago. You can watch all of that if you go to youtube.com slash heartlandmedia. If you go to YouTube and just type in any of those three names, Heather Booth, Nick Ward, and Don Rose, we have now put them up on the YouTube site, not only as an entire show, but in individual segments. And I'll tell you right now, we are now going to be on Thursday nights on Can TV at 9 o'clock, starting on February 2nd. Get ready if you want to watch us and you don't want to go to youtube.com slash heartlandmedia. So that's enough of that. We're going to be right back. We're going to hear from our friend Brian Meir, who's going to report from Brazil, direct from Brazil. So stay tuned to the Live from the Heartland show here on the left end of your dial. Listen up, get ready. I'm not going to take no more. There's a revolution, a revelation going on in my soul. Buckle up. Hey, we're back. We're back with more Live from the Heartland for the week of January 28th. We are recording this on the 25th. And now we're going to go to our on-the-spot guy, Brian Meir, who was down in Brazil for many, many, many years, uh, works as a reporter, and has blessed us with his presence on the Live from the Heartland show a number of times. Uh, as many of you regular listeners know, we've been following what goes on in Brazil, and we've been gearing up for the election. The election is over. Lula has been reelected. He's been out of office for 12 years. There's a lot of hope on the part of a lot of progressives around the world. Let's find out what's been going on. Hi, Brian. How are you doing today? Pretty good. 
I'm okay. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Give us a little rundown. The most recent uh, thing that happened down there after the election was there was a lot of uh, apprehension about a reaction from the Bolsonaro people. They were camped out at military headquarters. And then next thing you know, there's an attack on the Capitol. It's just like it was January 8th, but it could have been two years earlier on January 6th in Washington. Fill us in on what's going on, brother. Okay, well, first of all, there's a lot of similarities, but there's also some major differences, right? Like what happened on January 6th? Remembering that Jair Bolsonaro's son, Congressman Eduardo, took part in the January 5th War Council meeting in Washington, D.C. with Mike Lindell and Sidney Powell and all those other people. They have very, very close ties with Bannon and the Trump people. And those are the people who are giving them advice on how to do things, right? A, a lot of advice on big data targeting on social media and things like that, and tactics, uh, white supremacist dog whistles and things like that. Um, and so they were too weak in Brazil, however, to try to pull this off on Inauguration Day, like they did on January 6th in the United States. On Inauguration Day, 300,000 people came out to see Lula's inauguration. And uh, another big difference is that Bolsonaro fled the country before finishing his term. A couple of days before the end of the term, he didn't do the right bureaucracy to transfer power, and he just flew up to Orlando. Since he hadn't transferred power, he still had his diplomatic visa. So he's up there now, and the U.S. government has told him he has 30 days to change his status. And a lot of progressive members of Congress are trying to pressure the Biden administration to not give him the visa, right? So they waited a week to, until a week after the inauguration on a Sunday in which the entire downtown area of the city was completely empty. It's vacation month in Brazil, too, this month, so totally empty. And so they stormed some empty government buildings. Unlike January 6th, when Congress was in session, people were apparently trying to even hang Nancy Pelosi or something. Uh, these, these were empty buildings. But the difference was, one thing that was similar is that in both cases, it looked like a lot of the police officers were just opening the doors right. for them. You know, like in the presidential palace, all, the all these windows were broken, but there was no damage to the front door at all. Right, which is highly suspicious. And since like 30% of the people who came, it was only about 10,000 people, they're like streamers, they're all streaming live. All of a sudden, everyone had footage of everyone who was there. They had footage of all these police officers like hugging them and taking selfies with them, military police. And so there was a lot of complacency from the military police and also from the actual military some factions within the military seemed like they were on board with trying to implement an actual military coup that day. And uh, what happened was after the, the person in charge of the military police that day in Brasilia was Bolsonaro's former national security chief, who had been appointed to be Brasilia security chief on January 2nd, he immediately also flew to Orlando to meet with Bolsonaro. So he was up in Orlando, and then the governor was like, okay, he's fired. He shouldn't have done that. But the governor uh, is a strong ally of Bolsonaro, too. And so Lula, the governor said, well, I fired our security advisor. It looks like there was some complacency with the military police, but now I've got everything under control. I'm going to take care of it. And so the police started doing this kind of like turtle game where they were like launching tear gas where there weren't any people, like marching together but not arresting anybody. 
And after a couple hours of this, Lula, who was out of town visiting a disaster zone, he just issued this decree. Starting right now, the governor is you know, removed from office for 90 days, and the federal government's taken over the uh, security. And within 20 minutes, they cleared all of the buildings because most of the people there were over the age of 40, and many of them were in their 50s and 60s. You know, they were infiltrated with people who knew exactly what they were doing. I mean, they, they stole all of the guns from the um, intelligence bureau. So there were people, I mean, it was planned and everything, but it's mostly an older crowd. So this just showed that if the police had been doing their job, everything would have been finished. They would have never gotten into any of the buildings. So in the weeks that followed, there's been all this information uncovered about certain members of the military going up to very high ranks who are actually interested in pulling off this coup. And so Lula- didn't uh, Lula fire the head of the military, or is that the guy you referenced already? The head of the army, exactly. Oh, the army. So, I mean, the, the head of defense is a conservative, and Lula got a lot of flack for appointing a conservative as defense minister uh, in the first week of January. But what you have to understand is the army, the military, was never cleaned up after the dictatorship. Everyone got amnesty. And a lot of the people in the Bolsonaro government were major players during the dictatorship. They all hate Lula's guts because he's one of the main people who brought down the dictatorship, right? And Lula doesn't get along with them at all. He was arrested during the dictatorship. They tortured his brother with electric shock for 15 days during the dictatorship. So there's a lot of bad blood. He decided to uh, nominate a conservative because there's two factions in the military going back to the dictatorship era. They're the regular conservative military who believe in the rule of law. And there's this, there's this group called the Tigers, who are just far-right fascist reactionaries, right? And so Bolsonaro had put all of the, these Tigers up into high positions, and Lula's now purging the military of them and handing the military back over to the regular conservatives. It's not ideal at all, right? But it's a lot better than the alternative. And so now... What he was initially getting a lot of flack for is turning out to prove to be like a master stroke of political cunning because the guy he put in power has enough clout, you know, to take care of it, to fire people. They respect him enough. You know, Mercio, he, Minister Mercio, he's so they fired hundreds of members of the military, uh, going all the way up to the level of general. And basically, the government is moving forwards very well. Uh, in a lot of fronts. Unfortunately, they've uncovered a genocide underway in the Yanomami indigenous reservation uh, in Roraima state, which Bolsonaro had opened up for illegal gold miners to enter and log and mine and things like that. And they poisoned all the rivers with mercury. It's a disaster zone there. 570 children have died from mercury poison and starvation. And it's just really exposed how ruthless and how horrible the Bolsonaro government really was. And he's becoming more and more isolated over this. I want to follow up on the uh, on the rainforest in general. But first, I want to ask you a question about, you mentioned kind of the principles of the right wing there, the Bolsonaro people. And I think you said, I don't know if you used the term white supremacy, but I wondered in Brazil, so much of Brazil was shaped by me watching that movie, which one? Orpheus descending kind of oh, thing. Black Orpheus. Black Orpheus. Yeah. Um, it's a classic. 
and uh, it's a beautiful movie, but it just, you know, Brazil is a has a, a sizable non-white population. I'm just wondering, is it really the white let uh non-white division or there's a crossover on both sides? Yeah, um Brazil is 53% black. And uh, you know, sizable indigenous population mixed in with people black and white descendant and everything. But it has a large white population, a large white elite that's been running things since the you know 1500s or whatever. I mean, it's still it's yeah. like, I mean, their def definition of black and white is different from the United States. Just like every other country, it's a totally arbitrary category. You know, so for example, you could have a Afro-Brazilian grandparent and be be white in Brazil. You know, so it's not it's not exactly the same. Nevertheless. There's huge population of Italian immigrants as well, German immigrants, Portuguese immigrants, and there is there are parts of Brazil, uh, even where they still speak German, you know, and things like that. So it, and Italian, and so I mean, there's sambas that have been written in Italian. So there is a large white population, and but white supremacy, it's a kind of virus, and it even infects people sometimes who might not look like they're white. You know, who, like they say, Hitler was part Jewish and everything too, right? So, but unfortunately, white supremacy is very strong. Um, Bolsonaro has a lot of ties to neo-Nazi organizations. There's a huge Nazi uh, problem in Brazil that's growing. You know, since Bolsonaro, technically, it's illegal in Brazil to belong to a Nazi organization or be a Nazi or espouse Nazi ideals. But Bolsonaro relaxed all of the enforcement of all of that. And he, there's actually letters they've uncovered that he wrote to neo-Nazi websites about 20 years ago saying, you guys are the reason I'm in politics. And he really believes in a lot of, you know, these kinds of ideals, especially if you see his treatment towards the indigenous people. Well, Brian, when we were talking about, you know, the poisoning of the rivers, et cetera, et cetera, one of the things that we try to follow on the show and is political people, you know, just in general, is what's going on with biodiversity and the planet. And can you give us a little more on the hopes we have under Lula for the rainforest there, as well as other things that people who were supporters of Lula are hoping will happen? Well, well, the Workers' Party was running the country for 13 years from 2003 to 2000 and the beginning of 2016. Um, they were the world leader in um, greenhouse gas reduction, you know, uh, and a lot of that was by curtailing, significantly reducing deforestation, but also it had to do with investments in wind energy and solar energy and things like that. Um, around 20% of the remaining virgin Amazon rainforest is on indigenous land, right? Um, and he has just, and there's still remote tribes that have no contact with, very little contact with the outside world, like the Yanomami before two years ago. Um, he's just turned over all of the government ministries and secretariats that have anything to do with indigenous people to members of indigenous uh, tribal leadership who live on indigenous lands. So, uh, including Sonia Guajajara, who's the head of the Minister of Indigenous Affairs. This is the first time in history of Brazil that this has ever happened. Uh, and he's got 
a historic, um, do you remember Chico Mendez in the 1980s who was assassinated? He was a rubber tapper union leader. Yeah, I do okay. remember that. So his number two, um, Marina Silva, she was formerly Lula's environmental minister. They had a falling out. She kind of swung to the right for a while, but she's still a major worldwide figure in the environmental movement. I mean, she grew up in the rainforest and only learned how to read when she was 19. She's from a really poor family, and she's now the minister of the environment. And that's being, you know, applauded around the world. So there's still a lot of problems. A lot of the Amazon region is just lawless, you know, uh, hard to control because it's huge, a huge area of territory. The Amazon jungle is bigger than the continental United States, right? And so... Um, with only about 20 million residents. Uh, there's a lot of challenges and stuff, and we're worried that there could come some kind of tipping point where these fires start, like it's what's happened on the west coast of the US and in Australia and stuff, if things aren't, if people don't start acting really fast. I personally think they have to start doing a lot of replanting as well, you know, to recuperate what's been burnt down in the last four years and, you know, during the last whatever, 100 years. It, remembering there was the World Bank that convinced the military dictatorship in the 1970s that it would be good for Brazil's economy to rip down the rainforest, and they started financing it. Um, and it's mostly American and European corporations that make money off of the deforestation. Cargill is one of the big ones. I think that people who want to help preserve the, the rainforest in the U.S., instead of like donating to NGOs that in Brazil or something like that, should look into like what kind of political strategies could be built to punish American companies and American businessmen who are selling you know, lumber from Brazil. The US is still one of the big buyers of Amazonian lumber, lumber on the black market. And the people like groups like Cargill that are producing soy inside of the legal Amazon encouraging soy production by building these huge river ports in places completely surrounded by a jungle, knowing that this will encourage people to burn down jungle, you know, so their soy can reach the ports. And uh, the beef industry, you know, uh, is another big, during the, during the 80s, the biggest purchaser of, of beef produced in the Amazon rainforest was Burger King, right? I mean, yeah. now everything's done indirectly. No one wants to say their beef comes from the Amazon rainforest now, but I would be willing to bet that a large percentage of the beef consumed in the U.S. still comes from the legal Amazon. Well, this has been great, and uh, we uh, we have a packed uh, house today with our show. Uh, one last thing, I just wanted to ask you, since I hadn't remembered the name of the film Black Orpheus, but thank you for reminding I love that film. Another film I saw that I don't know if you've ever saw was called The Emerald Forest. Did you ever see that? Yeah, that's a classic, too. That's so a that's good one. It's where a, 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 a white kid gets kidnapped by some Native people, and they take him into the jungle, and he becomes an advocate and goes up against his dad, who is trying to build a dam. I won't go any further. I'd <laughs> like to recommend a recent movie that I think is the best anti-imperialist movie made in any language in the last 20 years, which is called Bacarao. It's incredible. Look look for it. Watch it. I'm sure you'll like it. It'll Where does it you take of, place? Just give us a hint. In the, it's in the desert-like backlands of the Northeast. It's about a group of foreigners, mostly Americans, in a hunting club. It takes place in a parallel near future, and they're coming there to hunt people. 
Oh, gosh. Okay, well, that's people our... rise against them. It's really good. It's really good. Uh, Brian Muir, it's really good to have you on. And uh, I can't wait till I get to Brazil and hang out with you down there or if you're back up here. Uh, and uh, we'll check in with you a few weeks, maybe a month, but get another report because they're really good. Right. Thanks a lot, Michael. Keep Sorry up the good work, brother. Have Katie for me, okay? I will do that. She's working hard on a political campaign. All Very right. Uh, all you listeners out there, you viewers out there, this is Michael James saying goodbye to Brian Meir, telling you to stick around. We're going to come right back with Dave Kraft of the Nuclear Energy Information Service, and we're going to talk about what's going on on the nuclear front, because there's a lot of hype about how it's good for us, nuclear power. Not so. Right back. Listen up, get ready. I'm not gonna take no more. There's a revolution, a revelation going on in my soul. Buckle up, get ready. Well, here we are. We're back with more live from the heartland for the week of January 28th. Uh, and we're really glad to bring on an, uh, an old friend. Uh, we're, we're older people, but we also known each other a long time. David Kraft from the Nuclear in Energy Information Service. And uh, longtime listeners and viewers of the show know that he's been on before. Uh, he does great work, and they used to throw some great dances at the Heartland Cafe to raise money for the Nuclear Energy Information Service. David, good afternoon to you, and how are you? It's so good to see you again, Michael, and Happy New Year. First time I've seen you this year. I'm doing okay. Thanks. Good. Um, you know, I noticed you've, the organization's had some events. Um, that prompted me to look at things and then get a hold of you. I also see on television and I see emails and think, even if you look it up uh, on nuclear power, how it's clean energy, it's safe energy. Um, what's really the deal on nuclear power? I've followed your lead for many years, being very critical of nuclear energy, uh, refreshing me on why and where things are at on the, uh, on the energy front. Sure. I'd like to say starting out that Nuclear Energy Information Service turns 42 this June. Congratulations. So, so we're not neophytes to the issue. We have followed this. We are certainly anti-nuclear, but we are a safe energy advocacy group that thinks there's a better way of getting electrons than fissioning uranium to boil water. Uh, we've watchdog Exelon ComEd and now Constellation, they call themselves reactors in Illinois for this whole time but also have done stuff on the national and international level. So we're not newbies to this. Uh, yes, we're grassroots and we're lay people, but that's important too, that the lay people have to have a voice in the nuclear issue too. It shouldn't be governed by some priesthood invested at the Department of Energy in Washington. So that little preamble out of the way, um, there, there's quite a bit going on on the nuclear front, both, uh, not both, but uh, nationally, internationally, and specifically here in Illinois. Uh, we've got a lot to cover, and I'll see how far we get today. So We can have you back on any time. Okay. Well, where, you, where do you want to start, locally or nationally or what? Well, so, let's, so. Uh, let's start with the overall picture of uh, the push for nuclear power and why we uh, encourage people to not be rooting for it. Sure. I would say right now one of the most worrisome pushes for nuclear power is coming from the Biden administration. They are one of the most pro-nuclear administrations we have run across in our 40 years of operating. Uh, for the last two years, they've been uh, throwing all kinds of billions of dollars to bail out old nuclear plants, invest money in new nuclear designs, which won't be ready for the next 10 or 20 years, if at all, and 
have sent their uh, Department of Energy uh, uh, Secretary uh, Jennifer Granholm around the country on a uh, rah-rah speaking tour at, at uh, various state capitals, national labs, telling everybody how great nuclear power is. So to get back to your initial question, it is not clean, it is not green, it is not emissions-free, and it creates radioactive waste that has to be managed and kept out of the environment for tens, if not hundreds of thousands of years. And last but not least, I think the situation in Ukraine demonstrates how inherently unsafe sprinkling nuclear power plants across the globe is going to be, given how wacko the people in, in national capitals are in terms of war and in terms of their energy policy. Uh, let's let's start with uh, Granholm. I kind of liked her as the governor of Michigan, and I kind of have wanted to like her. Are there opposing forces, anyone else in the administration, any bureaus that are more critical of it and pushing wind power, solar power, that kind of thing? Or is it pretty much just clear cut that the Biden administration and Granholm are pushing nuclear? Yeah, it's full steam ahead on nuclear, even though they will sprinkle, you know, little dabs towards renewable energy or efficiency or transmission, which is what we think is where the money should go. But the push is really on, uh, no doubt about it. We uh, It's been estimated somewhere around the order of $70 billion has been allocated over the last two years from the federal coffers, either at DOE or elsewhere, through the uh, Infrastructure Act and the recently passed IRA. Now, granted, renewable energy did get quite a bit of money from the IRA recently. However, and here's the kicker, no money was allocated for the transmission grid that we have. So you could have a billion wind turbines out there, and if you can't connect to the grid and get the power to the customer, all those wind turbines and solar panels are worthless. So it's been that kind of a situation. I liken it to going to the hospital with, with cancer and say, we can cure your cancer, but we have to give you heart disease in exchange. And that's kind of how the administration operates, you know, one step forward, a step and a half back. Yeah, we'll get money for renewables, but the nuclear people have to get their cut of the pie, or we have to have oil leasing in the Gulf, or, you know, on and on and on to subsidize the fossil fuel industry. So they are captured up and down the line. Every agency is, is behind this, and they're pushing really hard to make nuclear prominent. Dave Kraft of the Nuclear Energy Information Service, are there any uh, states or forces in the United States that are countering this? I mean, in Illinois, I'm not sure if we still have nuclear plants. I know when you go used to go swimming up at, in Zion, there was one up there that shadows you. Um, well, I'm pleased I, to see the Zion one is totally scrubbed. It's not there anymore. Oh, but there, there is a thousand tons of high-level radioactive waste with no place to go that's still sitting there. No, uh, how about Illinois, the rest of Illinois? Yeah, Illinois um, is the largest uh, nuclear user in the country. We have 11 operating reactors, and if we were a country, we would be the 11th largest nuclear power in the world, just behind Ukraine. And obviously, nobody wants to get behind Ukraine these days. But um, we also have about somewhere on the order of 10 or 11,000 tons of high-level radioactive waste with no place to go. So we are number one. It is now operated by what's called Constellation Energy, which is a subsidiary of the Exelon Corporation. Um, that occurred in the last year, and uh, they are the ones actually operating the plants. Is and that ComEd? They're totally separate from ComEd, and people don't understand that sometimes. ComEd is what's called a distribution company. 
Okay. They're in charge of the wires, the transformers, the poles. If your power goes out, they come and fix it. If the power lines go down, they fix it. They do not generate power by law, but they do buy power on the open market, which is supplied by constellations, nuclear plants and all the other coal plants and gas plants and wind turbines and solar power around the country. So when so, they ask for, when ComEd is asking for uh, an increase in the Illinois legislature, they would be getting more money to run nuclear power plants, the other companies? It does to the extent that ComEd will enter into contracts to purchase that power from Constellation. See, Constellation is going to dump its energy into the local grid, which is operated by an outfit called PJM. That's Pennsylvania, Jersey, and Maryland. It's a, it's the the big wires company that transmits the electricity in that region. And we are part of the region, strangely enough. But um, so it's a market-based system. The generators dump the power into it. And then the power providers like ComEd buy power at rates. Now we have a, an Illinois entity that actually by law handles these purchase agreements and they do it as equitably as possible. And they're actually aiming to buy as much renewables and, and that sort of stuff first before we get into the dirty power, which is nuclear and fossil fuels. But that, that's how the game is set up right now. Uh, Dave, give us your best plan of action for what people should be rooting for and doing to change the way we get power. Because we have all these issues now with uh, you know electric cars are coming on and there's need for more energy and ways to distribute it. What should uh, uh, conscious human beings, citizens of the world be asking for and wishing for? Well, I'll, I'll just take it from Illinois since this is predominantly where this is gonna be broadcast, but everything's well, going around the world now. Our own. But go ahead. We'll get to the rest of you folks around the world in a minute. But, um, you know, you have to look locally what goes on because a lot does happen at the state legislative level. And in Illinois right now, unfortunately, because of laws that were passed over the last six years, our 11 nuclear plants are pretty much guaranteed a profit by bailout. That was negotiated in order to get renewables, like I was illustrating earlier, happens at the state level too. So they're going to be operating. And what we're worried about, though, is that the power companies are looking to extend their operation of these reactors an additional 20 years, which means they'd be operating for up to 80 years. Now, I don't know how many of your listeners, either in Illinois or worldwide, are operating their 1948 Fords, but that's pretty much essentially what we're talking about here with a little more complicated machinery. So we're concerned about extending the operating licenses. We're concerned and we have to oppose uh, the creation of fake radioactive waste dumps around the country and putting all this radioactive waste on the roads and rails and bridges and, and waterways of the country. So those are two very local things that, that we need to pay attention to. And uh, in the future, make sure that these reactors do not get bailed out. You know, they're old machines. They're so 20th century, as we say. Uh, and we have to really make a concerted effort to demand with consequences, a renewable energy future. And what that would look like is supporting solar, wind, energy efficiency, first of all, and improved transmission. If you don't have the transmission fixed, none of this stuff is gonna work. So those are the biggies right now that you gotta focus on to put into place. Uh, Dave Kraft, we're gonna have to have you back on to talk about a lot of stuff, but before you go anywhere, we got some minutes left. 
Uh, things we've talked to you in the past about have been Chernobyl, Fukushima. Uh, we haven't talked Ukraine yet, but we know the fear that uh, seemed to be running you know, widespread over there in Europe around Russian bombing of the Ukraine and the injuries that the nuclear plant took. What was going on with that and what should we sure. think about that besides being fearful? Well, I'll bridge you to it. Um, I, I should have added one more piece to things people should oppose. And that's this uh, new generation of reactors that you're talking about, small modular nuclear reactors. None of them exist, yet they're being positioned as climate uh, solutions. They're not going to be even ready for the next 10 or 20 years, so that's ridiculous. But imagine if these small modular reactors were sprinkled around Ukraine right now with all the bombing that's going on. So absolutely, you're right, Michael. Um, you know, Ukraine is the poster child for what you're doing wrong. But I do want to read a quick quote before we end, because this came out in January of last year by the former chairman of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission and energy ministers from, from Germany, France, which is the large, one of the largest nuclear users. And they say, a new generation of nuclear, it, it's a fiction that it will be clean, safe, smart, and cheap. In reality, nuclear is neither clean, safe, or smart, but a very complex technology with the potential to cause significant harm. Now, these are insiders. These are the folks who ran nuclear departments and, 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 and entities in their own country saying, nuclear is not the future. So to promulgate it around the world of the next generation of reactors is short of, it's just criminal, quite honestly. Are there any countries uh, or states uh, that have taken real steps to ban nuclear energy and have really made the shift to other sources? Uh, by law, you can't ban nuclear energy because it would violate the Commerce Clause of the Constitution. However, there are ways of managing nuclear to make it less attractive, but none of the states are really aggressively doing that anywhere. There are a few states that are pushing harder on um, renewables, like Iowa, for example, but at the same time, they're exploring this next generation of fictional reactors that doesn't exist as well. So it, it's a really complex, tough political fight we have ahead of us, but we got to take it head on and, and stop the new reactors from being built. Uh, and your take on electric cars. Oh, um, I'm, a quickie. I have I'm, a friend who had a... Uh, I got to ride in a Tesla when I was out down in El Paso, uh, and it was very impressive, although I don't like the guy. But I also, uh, uh, I was impressed that this guy installed uh, a charging place at his house, so he has people pulling up in the alley and charging their cars. It was a whole new thing to me. Well, there are two, two levels of answer. From the technology point of view, compared to you know, the internal combustion engine, yeah, I suppose electric cars are good. But it, it, uh, once again, we are not asking the important question of what is all this electricity for? And, you know, it's really out there to enrich the capitalist system. That's, that's what all these DOE grants are about. That's what all these new reactors are about. That's what all the old reactors are about. We are not confronting the fact that because of the climate crisis, we have to examine the fact that everybody even in the first world, is going to have to take a reduction in their per capita energy use. So going to electric cars and electrifying the buildings is relatively better than burning coal or oil, but it's the methadone approach to dealing with the energy addiction that we have that's causing the climate crisis. And you could do a whole two shows on that because that's a real political question of 
it's it's the fundamentals of capitalism that are destroying the planet through climate change. Dave Kraft, you always enlighten me, and I'm uh, I am looking forward to having you back on regularly. Um, and if people want to get a hold of you or uh, the organization, it's neis.org. Yes, that's the website, and email is even easier. NEIS at NEIS.org. Send us an email if you have a question. Well, I have a lot of respect for all the work that you've done for many years. Uh, you are inspirational. I keep turning off lights, although I read a story that says it doesn't really matter with new bulbs. Uh, we'll talk more energy in the not too far off. Fair enough. It's good to see you again. Thanks for having me on and say hello to Katie. I will. Right on, brother. All right, stay All right, well. everybody, stay tuned to Live from the Heartland. We're going to be right back. We're going to talk with the people who have this Grammy-nominated children's album, Into the Little Blue House, Wendy and BD. Don't go too far. Here on the left end of your dial or youtube.com slash Heartland Media or Google or Spotify podcasts. You can find us if you want us. All right, brother. See ya. Stay well. We'll be right back. Listen up. Get ready. I'm not Welcome, sign at the door. All accepted. Come explore a world built from love, real as it seems. Just imagine a place of your dreams. Roar like a lion whose friend is a mouse. All live together in the little blue house. Hand in hand, built with pride. Honesty starts on the inside. Bring your hammer, drill and saw. Foundation laid, not dreamed and drawn. Built from the bottom, cornerstone. Where love is planted, love is wrong. The house stands for the greater good. Thus love joy in the neighborhood. Can't build those walls sky high For a better world diversify One door closes, another will open Feel what you feel, everyone's hoping To let in the light, see wrong from right Do unto others, try not to fight In this house, no one struggles alone where love is planted, love is grown. Talk when we fight. Bad feelings like more can grow overnight. So we talk and we listen. We listen some more. We're not always right, but we're good at our core. Learn to express the feelings we own. Where love is planted, love is grown. Where love is planted, love is grown. 
Nice. Well, I understand you got a tune for us. So how about we kick it off? Give us a little music. This is our song, Women of the Blues. And, and uh, Ivy and I wrote this song together. Um, to me, the women of the blues are always the, the underdog. They haven't been featured, uh, you know, so it was super important that I first have women on this album. And second, that, you know, that I, that was Michael's idea. He's like, you got to write this. Oh, I man. Yeah. Well, and it's, we try to be as historically accurate as possible too, you know, so it's, it's catchy, you know, hopefully, but also educational. It's very, it's very catchy. My two and a half year old can't stop singing it. And what he loves the most is when I go, it's about her story. Her story. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Her story. Her story. Okay, let's hear it. All right, we're ready. nice that got me going that's what i like that that's good so hey let me ask ivy uh are you from chicago so i actually am uh raised from waukegan the south south side of waukegan well that's close enough but i used to yeah. go to the genesee street branch y up there in the oh, old sure. days yeah oh yeah years and years ago so let me ask you where are you playing next uh well actually i play tonight i play tonight down at, at rose's lounge off armitage so one of the last i think true Two blues institutions, you know, last left from the kind of the old days. So I was actually with a guy uh, the other day getting a massage, and we were talking about music venues, and we talked about roses. Oh sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's cool. It's same, you know, same the same. How often do you play out there? So I'm I'm there every Wednesday, so every week at roses, um, and then depending on my you know show schedule or touring schedule, it, it gets changed. But that's my home away from home. We'll come see you on a Wednesday. Let me ask. Uh, uh, Wendy and DB, where uh, you guys play out for kids? Do you go to schools? Uh, you do children's concerts? All, all of that. And uh, actually, we're going to Wisconsin this Saturday. Right. Um, and then we will be in LA playing at the El Portal Theater in North Hollywood. We're, I was just telling Ida we're doing five minutes uh, Grammy weekend uh, for a showcase there. But yeah, we play everywhere. We play children's museums, we, we play libraries, we play all kinds of venues. We were at Wood Trap Theater, yeah. we travel. We haven't been to Europe yet. 
Yet. Yet. Yet. So, so the album Into the Little Blue House is up for the Grammy. Are you all going to California for the Grammys? Are we going? Of course we're going. Right on. And when, when are the Grammys? How soon? I'm going to watch for this. There's Sunday, Michael, and I wanted to let our listeners know that they can watch the pre-telecast at Grammy.com. That's the category that the children's um, album and also the blues category will be at the um, in the pre-tell. It starts at 2 p.m. Central Time. So just go to Grammy.com. You'll be able to see them uh, hopefully win their Grammy. Okay, so that's on Sunday. And uh, if any February. February uh, 5th. 5th of February. Okay, that's good because this show comes out, it'll air on the 28th. Uh, but that's good. We'll get some promo on it. Uh, is there anything that any of the three of you would like to add before we ask you to do another tune on our way out? Well, this album I feel like is way overdue, and we're really happy that we could be the the lucky people to get this out there. Um, but I think children really need to have blues, you know, in their in their repertoire. They need to know where rock and pop came from. They need to know all of this stuff. And we did put some of those tenets into this album, like the work song and the field holler, field yeah. holler. So it's got some historical pieces too. And it, it, we're super excited to share it. And we are so lucky to have Ivy here. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, this is good. And Lynn, correct me, don't we have a friend uh, who uh, writes music and did a comic book or a kid's book on blues? Oh, Terry, Terry Abramson. Yeah. yeah. I think that, that would be a great gift for kids, his book and this album. It's a great, it's a great book. Okay, Wendy, Daryl, and Ivy, take us out with a tune. And uh, we'll talk over you at the very end to let people know what they've been watching and some other information. This is Ivy's song. Time to shine. Time to shine. Not on the album. Yeah, no. Yes, it, is. it is. It is. This is very special because the background singers in this are actually children of the of oh, the musician. Yeah. So it's a little, that's a little extra trivia you heard here. Wait, and oh. since we stop, let me just tell you when I heard this song, to me, it spoke to me as a yeah. child. It spoke to me speaking to children. Sure. And oh, she sure. said she wrote this for herself, but then when I had my daughter, I was like, "This is yeah." yeah. Sometimes when you're writing to yourself, you're writing to children. Right. It's the heart, right? Right, the absolutely. Song is that we have to have the song album. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. Time to shine, little darling. Don't let no one do you dim. Time to shine, little darling. Don't let no one do you dim. You can be a
was great. That was wonderful, you guys. I'm gonna we'll have to play that often on the radio here. We'll use it as a little bit of a, a theme song. That's an awesome song. Okay, Lynn, I want to thank you for putting it together. Uh, you've been a great music producer for this show for many years. I've gotten to meet a lot of great people in person and via Zoom. And I really want to thank Wendy, Daryl, and Ivy for coming on. Uh, I got a grandson, and I don't know, let me see. It's my, my niece's kids that I'm going to get the album to because they're at the age, there's two of them now. They really would like it. And I'm going to enjoy it myself, too. Keep on playing it. Thank, Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Okay, you have been listening to the Live from the Heartland show for the week of the 28th of January, recorded on the 25th. I'm Michael James. I want to thank all the people who make this show possible. Hal James, uh, who is our engineer. Lynn Orman, who produces the music. Tom Clark and Katie Hogan, who come on every once in a while. And, uh, you know, it's a big and rough and tumble world out there. There's a lot of wonderful things happening, a lot of miserable things happening. We want you to all stay engaged, pay attention, do all you can to make the world a better place. So like we say all the time, do good in the world, because the world needs all the good that you do, that I do, that we do, all the power to the people. See you next week. How you doing the best you can? the mountain under the big blue sky you got a dream awaiting i can see it in your eye it may not come easy but you know you've got a friend i'll be by your side the entire ride just let me hear you say amen are you doing doing are you doing the best you can Tell me, are you doing, doing, are you doing the best you can? Are you doing?